0: Welcome to Research Conversations, a podcast powered by the Digital Legal Lab. Today we have with us Lisa Van Dongen, who is a PhD candidate and lecturer at Tilburg University, specifically at TILT. Her teaching focuses on intellectual property innovation and research methodologies on bachelor's and master's level. Her doctorate research explores from a legal and interdisciplinary perspective how patent enforcement can contribute to policy objectives of specific industries, ICT and healthcare, and the patent system in general. For Her doctoral research, she has also spent time at the Institute for Information Law in Amsterdam and the London School of Economics and Political Science, and is currently planning her third research visit to Munich, Germany. She was recently granted the EPIP Young Scholar Award at the EPIP 2022 conference in Cambridge. On top of her doctoral research, her current research interests lie primarily in judicial remedies in European intellectual property rights enforcement, as well as in the workings of the new unified patent court system, innovation, and intellectual property systems in the fields of software, AI, and healthcare. So, hi, Lisa. How are you today? Thank you very much for that introduction.
1: I'm fine. Thanks.
0: (laughs) This is a question that I've been thinking about for a very long time. Um, In the digital legal landscape, why should we care about patents? Right. Um,
1: I think that is no easy question, but I think when you think about the basics that um, basically everything around us these days is, is patented um, your phone for instance hundreds if not thousands of patents uh, as much even a, just a simple the hair clip for instance could have patents on it or even my rings for instance the me- matter of fabrication could have been uh, patented so to a large extent patents control or at least influence uh, the availability of a lot of items that we use from day to day and, and that surround us as well as the prices that we pay for it um so uh what if you ask why should we care about patents is because well do you like everything around you <laughs> do you want more of it do you what do you want to pay for it <laughs> uh, but also uh, in terms of healthcare and uh, even even just you know Public transport or whatnot—it's—it's it's everywhere. We're surrounded by things that are patented, so um, we should very much care about how these rights are um, uh, framed, how they are adjudicated, uh, enforced, and um, yeah,
0: how how they essentially affect all of us. I definitely care more about patents after your answer, <laughs> <laughs> but um, also if we talk about your doctorate research in particular, uh, how how are you framing your research and uh, what, what ends are you trying to reach with your research question? Uh,
1: that's the, the question every PhD candidate always fears. <laughs> um no, so essentially, what my research revolves around is enforcement in ICT in healthcare, as you noted. Uh, what I'm interested mostly in is that, uh, is how int- different interests are weighed in these contexts. Uh, with ICT, you can think of, um, like I said, the phone it has hundreds of thousands of patents on it. So obviously, if if one patentee could hold out, you know, that affects the price or the availability of the product, for instance. Um, Uh, And you could also think of because of the increased computerization of many products, software is becoming omnipresent, and that uh, further affects um, the availability and uh, problems if there are disputes about the rights and stuff like that. So there are a lot of interest involved these days and our phone becomes much more important if you don't have a smartphone these days or a computer you pretty much don't exist anymore, <laughs> if I may be so bold to say that. And whereas when you think of healthcare, obviously what you think of is patient rights, but also doctors so to be able to freely give the best care to the patients that they know. Uh, also hospitals to actually give that care um, and to be able to prescribe the best medicine and stuff like that. Um, so those, those are just some interests you can think of. And what my research looks into is How are these interests weight? Because uh, in earlier research of mine, I've already concluded and many people before me that uh, the emphasis is very much on the enforcement of the patents rather than any non-proprietary rights that may or interests that may conflict with that. Um, So I'm looking into why that is the case and how we can basically do better. (laughs) And that's basically what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. Uh, that I'm looking into remedies specifically in enforcement, uh, and to see how we could still enforce these rights in a way that make them still effective and attractive for inventors and investors to have, but in a way that it's it it they better serve society, and that there are, a better balance is achieved between the conflicting interests.
0: That is very interesting um, about how this balance has to be achieved uh, for it to be actually helpful in practicality. Um, I've also been reading up on your work and uh, I've found that you speak quite a bit of flexibilities. And I wanted to know that um, how does this work in the context of IP enforcement? That's an interesting
1: question. Uh, (laughs) Flexibilities are quite fluid. Um, but what I mean with that is that there is uh, there are several moments in a enforcement procedure that a court can decide to use certain uh, areas of discretion to better tailor the result, the outcome of the case, to the facts of the case, to the interest involved, and many other factors that may actually have some bearing on the end result. Uh, and what that means with in regards to with regard to remedies is that if uh, for instance, a patentee asks for an injunction and for damages, as well as recall of infringing products. And, for instance, also a publication order that the infringer has to publicly admit to having infringed the patent, for instance. Uh, but, for instance, the patentee has not really um, behaved himself very correctly, uh, or there are conflicting interests uh, at play as well. That it's, it's about, for instance, a, a life-saving product. Um, then what a court has the room for is, to, first of all, to decide: do all of these should all these remedies be granted? So it's about the combination of the remedies. If an injunction is already found very severe, for instance, the court may decide to not grant the injunction, but instead uh, inc- grant the other ones, and for instance, maybe um, increase the seriousness of these other uh, measures. Uh, what they what the court could also do is, for instance grant the injunction, but then with a carve out, meaning that uh, certain patients uh, will be excluded from it or a certain order can still be uh, fulfilled or it could be granted with a delay so that doctors, for instance, still have time to get retrained for the other um, the alternative product that is from the patentee. Um, and so you can think of a lot of ways in which the court can actually affect the combination of remedies uh, what the scope is of the actual remedies and whether they should be granted. So basically getting to the most um, yeah, to the most balanced outcome, uh, given all the factors
0: involved Before we go forward, I'd just like to ask, what is the unified Patent Court? You speak quite a bit about it in your research and you're looking at it even right now in your doctorate thesis. what exactly is it? What is the jurisdiction and wh- how do we understand its role in the overall regime?
1: Right. Uh, so UBC is very complicated, but essentially um, what it does is the Unified Patent Court is a new court system that has been created specifically by EU member states because um, the EU member states couldn't agree on a European Union patent. So this was kind of the compromise. So via the enhanced cooperation procedure, they uh, got into the Unified Patent Court uh, Agreements and have been able to create a unitary patent. And it has become, it has come into effect uh, recently. (laughs) Um, So it's become operational. And uh, so it essentially just adds a new court structure specifically for the unitary patent. And it has created a unitary patent. And it has also created uh, the avenue for the existing European patents that uh, people who do not opt out, for the jurisdiction of the UPC, that they can also bring their claims to the UPC. So it's basically just a new patent and a new core system on top of uh, the existing layers.
0: Okay, that clarifies it. Um, Also, we're going to talk about uh, a chapter that you wrote for an edited book titled Proportionality and Flexibilities in Final Inductive Relief. And we're going to be linking this um, chapter in the details of this podcast. So in the paper, you tested the hypothesis that the Unified Patent Court will not bring about a change in the current automated tendencies in granting final injunctions, but rather cement them. What do you mean by that?
1: Right. For that, I should first talk about what automated tendencies are. Um, I'm not the first to have written about this. Many people have gone before me uh, to write about this. Uh, what uh, what many of us have concluded is that in Europe, there is um, quite uh, an automated tendency to grant injunctions upon finding an infringement. And that makes sense in in essence, because a patent is a right to exclude others, obviously that's best served by an injunction. However, um, if you look at the case, uh, how many cases um, in all of these European countries, injunctions are denied, despite the fact that an infringement has found, It it paints quite of an interesting picture because we see that not a lot of uh, injunctions are being denied at all. It's it's like in some countries you can basically count them in on one hand uh, over over many years, and and that seems unlikely because um, especially in fields like healthcare, you you think that there may sometimes be conflicting interests, like patient interest or doctor interest, that might actually uh, make it so that an injunction is Probably not the best way to go, or at least not an unqualified injunction. Um, so that's what we mean when we speak of automated tendencies in patent enforcement. As to the rest of the, <laughs> of the um, statement, we... Uh, what I looked into is basically all the legal instruments, all the legal sources that the UBC is supposed to use to base its decisions on um, how much of an assignment is being made to the UBC to break with these tenancies or whether they, it is actually capable of um, breaking with these tendencies, um, or whether they may be built in mechanisms that might make it difficult for the UBC to do so um that was really just the um the the statement that i the hypothesis that i was trying to test and were you able to confirm this hypothesis so i couldn't absolutely prove it because <laughs> um i'm a legal researcher so <laughs> but um so what what i did find was that um based on the law you you would think that there is uh, the, at least the room for the UPC to, to do so and the assignment to do so because the law actually does oblige um, courts to use proportionality to assess whether remedies are fair, whether they are not unnecessarily costly, uh, and whether they don't uh, amount to trade barriers in some way. So there are these obligations which are mandatory that courts need to apply. But be, as we see, because of the uh, automated tendencies, apparently courts don't really use that uh, those um, are those factors that much or at least not in a determinative way. Um, so even though the lies there, uh, if the way it's being applied right now doesn't create a very strong push for the UPC to break with those tendencies right now. Um, and there are also organizational futures um, of the UPC and also embedded uh, components in its framework um, in the law that are also suggestive that it would probably if if the UPC is going to move one way or another, it's probably going to move towards stronger enforcement. And one example being that it will be in direct competition to some extent with national courts because it has to uh, for the for the system to take it has to be attractive. For patentees. And the other way, the best way to make yourself attractive as a court is to offer strong enforcement. Um, So um, the system really, really hinges on um, what the UPC will decide to do in this case, there is nothing in the system, or in the law that really prohibits it from uh, breaking with its tendencies. But there's a lot in there that suggests it will
0: not be motivated to do so without an additional push. So it seems like almost that a lot still needs to be done, and a lot of jurisprudence need to develop need to develop around the court, and um, also there needs to be some time needs to be spent by these courts deciding cases in order for them to become more strengthened as an institution with their own case law and with their own like sophisticated jurisprudence when it comes to dealing with more patent claims. Oh,
1: that's a difficult one because uh, what you should also keep in mind is that. Um, Every judge is informed by their uh, own legal tradition and not just that, there are also certain procedural uh, constrictions uh, and even the way um, parties of a dispute approach a patent uh, dispute, or how they bring it before the court, is also very specific to the legal tradition they are in. Um, I've seen cases between the same parties that have been brought very differently before the English court or German court or a Dutch court. So it's very interesting that parties themselves also play a role in what they bring in front of a court. And obviously a court is limited to what they have be- presented in front of them and what can be proved. So there's always that I have to always make that um, um, disclaimer. Uh, But it was picked up, for instance, by the European Commission. Uh, They in 2017, there were two communications, uh, one on standard essential patents and one on guidance to the enforcement directive, in which they actually in which the Commission actually made the case that courts really need to start using Article 3 to uh, make about a more balanced result. So they actually said that because of the very uh, potentially severe uh, implications for society of an injunction, that it was very, very important that courts took this role seriously. However, uh, because it's in a communication, obviously that doesn't mean anything to courts. So if you if change one, it needs to be brought about, it either has to be because, for instance, a new court like the UPC forces that discussion, um, but like I, I concluded in my research, that is unlikely uh, or uh, something will have to change in the law. And what I argue in my paper is that uh, based on current practices, what we see in in, in Germany and the Netherlands, for instance, that is, seems to be unlikely to really bring about a change. Um, so my argument and uh, my, my conclusion was, which is <laughs> a little bit of an unpopular one, but is that perhaps the EU should really try a little bit harder, at least when it comes to uh, its assignment for proportionality, that it should perhaps consider that if it doesn't want to burn its hands um, and providing for a more substantive patent law, then at least it should consider making a more concise, a more uh, obligatory proportionality uh, principle in the the context of
0: uh, IP enforcement. And so now thinking about solutions, um, you speak of the proportionality test. How do you think we can codify this and what should the ideal codification look like?
1: Right. So um, in the EU, we have two primary modes, I suppose, of of of, of legislation, obviously, which are regulations and directives. Um, There is a provision already that corresponds, that includes um, proportionality and fairness. And uh, the need that remedies are not unnecessarily costly or uh, amount to trade barriers, um, stuff like that. So there is an article that already covers that, and that is article three of the enforcement directive. This is a directive that is uh, basically Lex Generalis, it's um, applicable to all intellectual property rights in the enforcement context. so there is actually an article on this in a directive that has proven to be not as effective as we would have liked it to be at least some of us uh, <laughs> because um we don't really see uh, that use being made of that article very visibly throughout uh, european domestic courts um so while this doesn't have to be in any way prohibitive that a new directive with a new proportionality principle would have the same faith it is suggestive that maybe something stronger is needed something that is uh, more direct even though i would argue the article is already quite uh, effective in that sense if you look at the language it really says It's really a mandatory provision that says it shall be proportional and courts shall do this. So it's really forceful in its sense. But uh, for some reason, um, it has suffered the fate that it has. Um, So I think there's a good argument to make that uh, perhaps the best way to go about this is uh, to have a regulation on this. And it doesn't have to be uh, limited to just patent enforcement, I think it is a very good case to make that it would just be a general provision again for uh, all IP rights. and um, in terms of what it would look like, um, I think it's very important First of all, that it's very explicit that it's m- meant to be an assignment for courts. That courts need to apply, perform this test every time in the enforcement context. And uh, also that they have to motivate how they have uh, used this test and what the result is, what they have weighed for this test. Um, because right now there is a... a a lack of transparency. Um, There are a lot of courts that may not mention it, but have for instance applied it, or they have um, just concluded there's nothing disproportional about this and uh, just very straightforward um so there is some discrepancy in how we talk about proportionality so i think it is very important for any doctrine to be able to develop and for for that really the discourse between courts to develop to to talk about what works and what doesn't in in an indirect way that there should be more uh, um, communication on what the proportionality test looks like to them um and also to give a uh, parties to a dispute in the future in the past more tools um certain how to approach the enforcement context how to talk to courts how to convey that case um, and what their rights and, and obligations are in this sense so it's very very important that there is more of an emphasis on that Courts course always need to apply to, apply this and of course always need to communicate about this whether in oral judgment or even written judgment uh, additionally um i think it's very important certain very loaded terms uh, will be avoided in it. So there shouldn't be any uh, inclusion of um, innocent or non negligent or unintentional or even exceptional circumstances, because these words have all uh, gotten it such a limited meaning that their inclusion would become prohibitive basically of basically robbing such a provision of, of most of its value. Uh, because these, these words all create such a threshold that it's almost impossible to meet. So those kind of words should not be in there because even if you are applying it as such that um you know you you do hold such an infringer to a higher standard because they still infringe the right that they shouldn't have, right? But um there it they shouldn't become so prohibitive that um, you cannot account for other types of factors or interests that may still need uh, heat some moderation. And it's also very important that courts understand that it's not limited to um, just which remedies to grant, but also to the entire package, so the combination. Because it may be that one remedy as, as such is perfectly proportional, but if you uh, uh, combine it with other remedies, that in this specific case it might amount to something too severe. Um, so courts might also need to consider that certain combinations might. Uh, tip the balance too much to one side or another. Um, so just which remedies to apply the combination of the remedies, but also to their form. So it should be very important that if you're going to grant a certain remedy, that you can that it's uh, the focus is very much on tailoring. So it's very important to not rob a patent of its right of its value, right? It had it is an exclusive, right? So patentee should be able to exclude other people from using their invention. However, <laughs> sometimes you can already account for certain factors by just tweaking a little bit in the um, in the remedies, and in their form or in the scope, but by having a small delay or a small curve out, for instance, or have an expiry date because certain conditions have not been met by the parties, for instance. So there's, it actually, in that sense, can actually serve with parties as well, because if they have. Be naughty, let's say, then if other addition, uh, conditions could be set um, to uh, give them that injunction still, even if they normally wouldn't have been entitled to it, perhaps because of their behavior. So I think, uh, and in the last thing I think it's important is that um, it be stressed that while National limitations and exceptions could be informative in um, what kind of things um, the national tradition considers important to include or perhaps to limit uh, or to consider. They shouldn't become in any way prohibitive of of exercising this this discretion. So it's it's really important that if, for instance, normally. In this, in case X, if factor X is, is present, it would be undesirable to consider um, not granting an injunction, for instance, but it, there should still be the possibility for a court to say like, okay, but in this specific case with this, these specific circumstances, I think it is still uh, proportional to not do that. So um, it should, while it is good to have those national um Limitations and, and exceptions, they shouldn't become prohibitive in any way for courts to exercise this, this question, um, should the situation ask for it. So very shortly, <laughs> just kind of surmise, because I'm sure I've gone a little uh, broad here, but really it should just be an explicit obligation for courts with proper mo- uh, motivation that is uh, obligatory, which is stressed, what the court should consider for, for combination, which remedies and that form, And um, it should be made any kind of prohibitive uh, factors or limitations should not be included in there to make sure that courts know that uh, they're not limited to those situations or that a certain threshold is being created that uh, parties cannot um, realistically meet.
0: Also, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but in your chapter, I noticed that you give a lot of preference to the English approach to patent enforcement. Uh, and that why is the reason Do you give it more preference? And why do you think that their approach is better than the overall EU one?
1: This is a tricky one. I should first start with a disclaimer for all the other part, uh, European countries. <laughs> Obviously, um, the English framework uh, is uh, one of equity and common law, which means that naturally their courts have much more room, much more discretion, and basically the law uh, in those country is being uh, set mostly by the courts, right? So obviously the role of a court is very different there than in most other European countries. So obviously that influences the room, of course, in other European countries have, where there is much more emphasis on codified law, uh, Provided by the legislator. So in those in those countries, courts have to take more of a role of interpreter and applicants. Um, so in essence, in essence, they also still make law, but they see themselves less as lawmakers, but more as just um, basically impartial arbiters. Uh, <laughs> um, so in that sense, it, that is something that's really important to consider. But what I really think is a positive thing about the English. Uh, structure is that there is way more um, consideration for other factors so it's not necessarily limited to what is in the law or what has already been said by courts Um, and in that sense for instance there was a case about uh, on hard valves and this dispute between these two parties played out before uh, English courts Dutch courts and German courts and this is an interesting case because in England, Day, uh, the courts determined, based on the evidence, that there was indeed a group of patients whose life really depended on this one treatment. There was no alternative to it. So a carve-out was created in the injunction that that select group of patients meeting certain requirements could still get um, that treatment. And also, there was a, sort of, there was a delay of the injunction uh, that allowed uh, doctors to be retrained to the patentee's uh, invention instead. So um, these were important moderations that even though the injunction is granted, there are um, specifications made that uh, tailored to the specific case. Um, the English of the, the German court actually, and I have to say again, obviously it depends on how, what kind of case is brought by the parties. Even the same dispute between the same parties can look very different in terms of what evidence or what arguments are made in front of a court. But the German court, um, Basically, what the German court said was, I'm sorry, I cannot consider patient interests. Um, <laughs> so the injunction was granted. But what the uh, German court did was then create a bond. Uh, so basically, if the patentee wanted uh, his rights enforced, um, they had to post a whole lot of money. <laughs> um, I think it was a few billion <laughs> or something like that. Or it was, it was, uh, a ridiculous amount um, to still have it enforced. So effectively, the judge still managed to block the enforcement of the injunction. So this is kind of the what what we have to deal with here what i meant with what we have different systems to make. But what I think is really proper about the English system is that um, the, the German court said, I can't consider it because there's no law for it. Whereas the English court was like, well, <laughs> we need to consider this we can't ignore it so it's it's more it, there's more attention to what are all the factors here who has behaved in what way um what kind of other interests may be um, um affected here and um there is more room for moderation there and i think that uh, courts take their as uh, this also very seriously that they are um Not just applying the law in a specific case, but they really are affecting society with every decision that they make. And sometimes this may be more serious than in others. But I think that that attention to detail in in the the English system is uh, very, very important. I should, however, also say I do have some criticism still, because obviously what you depend on is evidence. You need to be able to prove that your company really will go bankrupt if you cannot do this. If you really have to prove that patients really have no alternative treatment, right? So it, there's a, a quite a high bar to prove that, that the interest that you uh, are claiming, e- even if they're not yours, that you can prove that they are real, that they're realistic enough for the court to justify not uh, enforcing the rights against you. Um, And that is a very serious concern. But I think that uh, more attention should be paid to less serious considerations, such as, um, for instance, uh, diabetics who have to go to the hospital um, several times a week because their monitor or their treatment was not available to them. They won't die of it because they still have an alternative treatment. But um, it does affect their life lives very seriously that's also my problem with exceptional circumstances <laughs> that there may be a lot of other situations that might also heed some consideration uh, but the, the problem always is proof <laughs> it's very difficult to prove that uh as a company who really wants to make a profit, that you're really making a case
0: and that that case is one that really should be considered and is legitimate for other people's interests. Well, this is very interesting and quite informative. And I feel like um, a lot of new discussions and a lot of new issues are gonna come forward once there's more development in healthcare, especially in the intersection of healthcare and technology, and also in the ICT in industry, Slash products, <laughs> So we're, we're going to see quite a bit coming uh, from the patent and the copyright area and we look forward to seeing your work uh, on addressing those issues and um, I, I would really suggest that everyone read the chapter that you wrote it not just summarizes everything you said, but it also kind of provides food for thought for people from other um, disciplines where they can understand why this relates to possibly their uh, field of work. So thanks again for taking the time to um, talk to us and to give us like all these answers uh, and to luck with your research. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for listening to me. <laughs> you can follow for more updates from the Digital Legal Lab by visiting the links in the description. Stay tuned for the next episode of Research Conversations.